When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On July 4, 1829, a 23-year-old Boston printer and anti-slavery activist named William Lloyd Garrison accepted an invitation to give a 4th of July address to the Park Street Church in Boston. The 1,500 white Congregationalists assembled in the large church were stunned by what they heard. Garrison told them that Independence Day was, quote, the worst and most disastrous day in the whole 365. He said he was ashamed of his country and the distance between its ideals and its practices. This is Bruce Laurie, a professor of history emeritus at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He makes the argument that the key document in the U.S. is not the Constitution, it's the Declaration of Independence. Garrison asked his audience to imagine something how American slaves might make their own Declaration of Independence from a tyrannical rule. Then, he adopted the exact cadence of Thomas Jefferson's original list of grievances against King George III in the Declaration of Independence. Garrison read out his own list on behalf of the American slave. He bellowed, quote, They have sold us in their marketplaces like cattle. They have lacerated our bodies with whips. In a word, what that speech did is he read African-Americans into the Declaration of Independence for the first time. Garrison ended by asking the congregation to imagine one more thing. Suppose, he asked, that the slaves should suddenly become white. Would you keep quiet in the face of their suffering? Then, answering his own question, Garrison roared, No, your voice would peal like deep thunder. I am an abolitionist, I glory in the name. I'm Sean Braswell. Welcome to The Thread. This season, we've traced the origins of an idea that has shaken the foundations of power across the world for almost two centuries now. It is the principle of nonviolent resistance, the counterintuitive notion that the best way to overcome your enemies is to love them. The best way to counter their blows is to absorb them. We began the season with Martin Luther King Jr. and his path to nonviolence. We then pulled on a thread that took us backwards through time to South Africa and India 
and Russia. And now, four episodes later, we are back in the United States in the early 1800s to learn about the American who inspired the nonviolent approach of Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist we covered in the last episode. If you're joining us for the first time, we encourage you to go back and listen to episode one. I am an abolitionist, then urge me not to pause, for joyfully I do enlist in freedom's sacred cause. The noblest strife the world never saw, then slave to Martin Luther King Jr. liked to talk about a promissory note that the American founders had written to all Americans in the Declaration of Independence. Well, in the early days of the New Republic, and at a time when very few Americans cared to pay attention to that promise, William Lloyd Garrison waved that note in the streets and hollered about it at the top of his lungs. Garrison's searing words and nonviolent protestations against slavery like the civil rights protest King would lead across the South over 100 years later, grabbed the collar of America and forced it to look at itself in the mirror. William Lloyd Garrison was born in Newbury, Massachusetts in 1805. He came from humble origins. Bruce Laurie again. His father was a mariner, um, his mother a housekeeper and a devout Baptist. He, um, he had a common school education like most Massachusetts children, uh, never went on to higher education, almost nobody did in those days. Instead, um, young, young men, almost never young women, were either sent to live with relatives uh, to work on farms or to um, serve apprenticeships in the skilled trades. Garrison became an apprentice printer. He later referred to himself as a New England mechanic. He moved to Boston in the late 1820s. He met a man named Benjamin Lundy, who was a Quaker abolitionist, and Lundy had a huge impact on him. Benjamin Lundy was a harness maker who took up the printing trade just so he could decry the evils of slavery. Lundy had endured beatings, charges of libel, and harsh public opinion. The Quaker zeal and abolitionist views captivated Garrison, and the young man began to write for Lundy's newspaper. Actually, he served two apprenticeships, if you think about it. One as a printer, and the other as an abolitionist. Lundy opened Garrison's eyes to the evils of slavery. Garrison yearned to fight the good fight and become an apostle of public virtue, like Lundy. Lundy was a Quaker, and you know the Quaker position is you don't need you don't need a clergy to tell you the word of God. Every person his is, is his or her own church, uh, his or her own own inner light, and. Um, you can see that as the beginnings of Garrisonian non-resistance. Garrison was a Christian, but he challenged the church just as he did all authorities. And you were either with him or against him. Garrison was convinced that abolitionists should be asking for nothing less than immediate and complete emancipation for all slaves. And he dedicated himself to the cause entirely. He even said, quote, I should deserve to be a slave myself if I shrunk from that duty or danger. Slavery was abolished in the U.S. 150 years ago, 
and it's difficult to imagine what life was like in the 1820s and 30s, and to appreciate the mindset of those times. It was hard to find a national politician, even in the North, who did not think that slavery should be left to the individual states. Most American presidents had been slave owners. Slavery was abolished by statute in many northern states, but a profound apathy toward the practice set in. America's moral indifference was deafening. And even among those opposed to slavery, there was little appetite for granting African Americans equal rights. The important thing about that abolitionist movement was it was very qualified. It never conceded political rights to African Americans. Even most abolitionists preached liberation without equality. Garrison changed all that with um, knowledge he gained from local African Americans and some nationally prominent African Americans. He combined equality with political rights. Garrison attributed the American public's apathy toward slavery and the abolitionist movement's aversion to racial equality to ignorance. And he set out to enlighten as many minds and change as many hearts as he could. He just needed a vehicle. You had to have an organ. You had, you had to have a newspaper. And so he launches his in 1831 in a small office in Boston. The 25-year-old Garrison pieced together his new newspaper on a large oak table in a room with ink-splattered windows. He slept on a pallet on the floor and worked odd jobs during the day so he could produce the newspaper at night. The first issue of The Liberator came off the press on New Year's Day, 1831. Garrison pledged in his paper, quote, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. He promised to rouse the apathetic in America with a trumpet call that would resurrect the dead. And in large capital letters, he proclaimed, I will be heard. Now thus began one of the most remarkable uh, ventures in American journalism. This is historian and Garrison biographer Henry Mayer from a speech on C-SPAN he gave before his death in 2000. No American before Garrison had so dramatically challenged his government's failure to realize its ideals. No citizen before Garrison had staked the survival of a nation upon a spiritual revolution accomplished by a minority liberated from conventional politics and armed only with a righteous conviction of truth. Garrison was a wiry man with glasses who was going prematurely bald. He wrote many of the early columns and editorials himself, mixing in poems, meeting reports, and harrowing accounts of slavery. The Liberator described in detail the living conditions of slaves. It printed regular reports of kidnappings, whippings, and murders of African Americans. It gave a voice to those who previously had none. Bruce Laurie. The most important thing about the Liberator is that it had a letters page. The Liberator collects letters uh, and commentary from all kinds of people. And so students of abolitionism who want to hear the voice of more obscure people uh, need to consult uh, the Liberator. Garrison attacked not just slavery, but racial prejudice writ large. He advocated for the immediate, unconditional release of all two and a half million slaves in America and to improve the living conditions of all African Americans. His newspaper routinely proclaimed the principles that Garrison was willing to fight for. But he still had to figure out what the nature of that fight might be. Garrison really had not much to say about violence early on uh, in his career. But several things happened to change his mind. 
Perhaps the most important was a near-death experience with a Boston mob in 1835. It was October. Local women were gathered for a meeting of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. A crowd of angry pro-slavery protesters gathered outside. Police escorted the women from the building for their safety. Garrison and a few other male organizers were left behind. The mob soon learned the outspoken Garrison was in the building. They chanted, out with him. Garrison escaped into a back alleyway with a colleague and ducked into a carpenter's workshop to avoid the crowd. But they found him. They wrapped a rope three times around his chest and marched him into the street like an animal on a leash. Hang him, someone yelled. The mob tore his clothes, broke his glasses, and dragged him through the streets while they debated whether to hang the abolitionist or tar and feather him. At some point, the police intervened and um, shoot away the mob, and he was his life was saved. The mayor of Boston was forced to put him in jail for his own protection. Garrison was shaken by the experience, but it also stirred an awakening within him. It made a huge impression on him, needless to add. It was sort of a, one of those uh, terminal moments in his life where, that I think turned him to a nonviolent resistor. Garrison's first-hand experience of the mob's brutality opened his eyes even further to the violence that lurked all around him in American society. And he landed upon a new method for combating that violence, one grounded in the Christian injunction to resist not evil. What he had in mind is for anti-slavery people to resist violence of any kind, not to engage in violence. Violence begot violence. Garrison became convinced of the powerful relationship between abolitionism and pacifism. He realized that abolitionists could not just publish protestations against slavery. They had to refuse to cooperate with the system that perpetuated it. But he becomes an advocate of what he called non-resistance. And it's the doctrine of non-resistance that is one of the um, cornerstones of the abolitionist movement in the United States. He really does invent Uh, non-resistance out of whole cloth. Like Gandhi, Garrison found that he had the courage to face the mob, and so he redoubled his efforts to provoke them. Garrison realized, as Dr. King later did in Birmingham, that you had to make injustice palpable to the public. You had to make it vivid and real. And so, even without the medium of television to serve as a megaphone, Garrison set out to make Americans ashamed of their connection to slavery. And 30 years before the Civil War, Garrison kindled a fire of outrage that would slowly spread across the country. William Lloyd Garrison was a man ahead of his times. The philosopher Henry David Thoreau first published his famous essay on civil disobedience in 1849. He argued that individuals have a duty not to cooperate with unjust governments. It is required reading in most American high schools today. But William Lloyd Garrison preached and pursued civil disobedience for more than a decade before Thoreau's famous work appeared. In 1838, Garrison established the New England Non-Resistance Society. The group adopted a declaration that is likely the first formal commitment to nonviolent resistance in history. The members of the society vowed that they would not serve in the military, that they would not even vote for public officials whose authority derived from physical force. The declaration, written by Garrison, condemned the use of violence in war, for the death penalty, and even in self-defense. Bruce Laurie. It's very, very powerful. Some people think it's the most powerful thing ever said on nonviolence. 
it's quite stirring. I mean, he, he talks about the evils of violence, how violence begets violence, and the importance of nonviolence as a Christian doctrine. When the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy first heard about Garrison's non-resistant society and its declaration more than 50 years later, he said that he experienced a spiritual joy. Tolstoy said that Garrison would be remembered as one of the, quote, great reformers of true human progress. Still, at the time, Garrison remained a lone voice in the wilderness, which suited the crusading abolitionist just fine. Garrison may have thought of himself as a Latter-day Jesus, right? A man basically without a church, someone who uh, uh, moves in and, 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 and calls for peace among the tribes and a higher order of morality. Garrison traveled the country, giving lectures like a revival preacher, even at black churches. His vivid, lurid depictions of the lives of American slaves impressed the details of human bondage into the minds of his audience. Once a good friend told Garrison that he should take it easy, that he was, quote, all on fire, Garrison took him by the shoulder and replied, I have need to be all on fire. I have mountains of ice about me to melt. Garrison could also be as harsh as he was uncompromising. He could be um, extremely egocentric and difficult to deal with. He was a vicious correspondent. If, um, if he did not like you or he disagreed with you, he would call you every name in the book uh, short of swearing. So um, as a writer, uh, he was uncompromising, hectoring, disrespectful. He was sort of an extremist. But with his wife and children, he was about as extreme as a big puppy dog. In his private life, he was the direct opposite. He was a loving husband and father. His daughter liked to warm her hands on his bald head in winter. Garrison would joke that at least a hot-blooded fanatic was good for something. He's sort of a contradiction. Privately tender, publicly impossible. And part of being publicly impossible was Garrison's insistence that the issue of slavery could not be resolved through the usual channels. Garrison believed in what he called moral suasion. He believed that the argument should be taken directly to the people. Politics, as usual, was not an option. By the middle of the 1830s, Garrison argues politicians are corrupt. Most people really don't care much about politics. You couldn't rely on politicians to get your work done for you because they were distracted by other issues and interests. So he develops this idea that the most effective way of agitating for slavery is outside of politics. The key to this were the anti-slavery societies that started to spring up around the country during the 1830s. By 1840, over 200,000 Americans, including some Southerners, belonged to abolitionist societies. Garrison had his own movement. Like Tolstoy, Gandhi, Rustin, and King, Garrison realized that non-resistance did not mean retreat. It meant courting conflict, extracting violence from society so as to bring it fully into public view. It was not easy. One big obstacle facing the anti-slavery movement, including Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, was the American government itself. By 1837 and 38, the, the Liberator was banned in most Southern states. And also, President Jackson, prohibited it from being mailed. So they shut down the U.S. mails. And finally, from 1837 until the early 1840s, Congress refused to debate the question of slavery. This forced Garrison and his fellow abolitionists to get creative. The abolitionists were the first American activists uh, to figure out what publicity is. 
What the Garrisonians did was they figured out that if you want to have people involved in a movement, you have to give them something to do, even the most seemingly trivial things to do, in order to give the movement publicity. So they, they launched things like called fancy fairs. They would set up on the town common and sell things to people with, ab- with abolitionist labels on them. And they also gave people things to sign. Abolitionists would, would go around in communities with these petitions printed in advance with lines on it so you could enter your name. Petitioning, for instance, to have Congress debate slavery, petitioning against the war with Mexico, petitioning against enforcement of the um, Fugitive Slave Act. The abolitionists also filled the mail with newspapers, declarations, and propaganda sheets. By 1837 and 38, they had produced over a million pieces of mail. And as a result of the petitioning and the mail, the movement looked a lot bigger than it was. In fact, some Northerners thought that all Yankees were abolitionists, largely on the basis of abolitionist propaganda. The abolitionists were very effective for a relatively small activist community. By the 1850s, they succeeded at shaping the terms of a nationwide debate about the practice of slavery. Garrison caught America's attention in a way that no agitator before ever had. Still, as the nation grappled with its most violent institution, it became clear to many that nonviolent resistance was not going to be enough to free America's slaves. Up next, we look at how the American Civil War vindicated and decimated William Lloyd Garrison's life work. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At age 23, William Lloyd Garrison wrote racial equality into the Declaration of Independence at the Park Street Church in Boston. And throughout his career, the firebrand continued to create spectacles with his words and deeds. Sometimes, however, he overplayed his hand. At a famous rally, he once put a match to the Fugitive Slave Act and the Constitution. And um, abolitionists, political abolitionists, really didn't like that. They thought it was sort of counterproductive because most Americans thought of the Constitution as a sacred document. That's right. Garrison set fire to a copy of the Constitution in public. Garrison also continued to preach nonviolent resistance as the means for accomplishing abolition, even as the growing rhetoric between North and South made such a means very unlikely. As the 1850s wears on, more and more abolitionists in Garrison's camp decide, look, uh, we've got to compromise on two things. One is on non-resistance. It's not working, right? Then the other is politics. What happens is more and more abolitionists, except for the hardline Garrisonians, endorse Abraham Lincoln. And more and more of them endorse the idea that it'll take violence to end slavery. Garrison could not be persuaded. He continued to argue for the power of moral suasion, the need to convince a critical mass of Americans that slavery was untenable. And he did so even as many of his former followers, including the slave-turned-social reformer Frederick Douglass, abandoned him in the years before the Civil War. People like Frederick Douglass argued that moral suasion is a very limited platform. You can't reach enough people, first of all. And second, it's not going to end slavery. Because slavery was created by politics, the Constitution, for instance, and it will have to end through politics or through violence. And so Garrison is, is really abandoned um, on the platform of moral suasion and non-resistance. The weight of the movement is running against him. Yet Garrison was steadfast. Of course, he was wrong. It took violence to end slavery, a lot of it. Ending of slavery through violent warfare was a bitter irony for Garrison. He ended up reluctantly supporting the war, sacrificing one set of his principles in order to pursue another. And while the war took its toll on the pacifist, the result was what he had been fighting to achieve for decades. Indeed, just after the war ended, 30 years after he was attacked by a mob in Boston, Garrison was embraced affectionately by crowds of liberated blacks in the streets of Charleston, South Carolina. He becomes a huge figure when he goes there in 1865, right after the war, and he's, he's really celebrated like a hero. It's, it's like sort of like a Roman triumph of adoration um, and really wild, wild um, respect. 
But the Civil War also destroyed the nonviolent movement that Garrison so carefully built. One month after the Civil War ended, the abolitionist declared his life's work at an end. In 1865, Garrison announces that um, there's, no, there's nothing more for abolitionists to do, that their goal all along was simply to liberate the slaves. And so he collapses the liberator and argues that the American Anti-Slavery Society should close its doors. But other leaders, including Frederick Douglass, voted down that resolution. African Americans could not yet vote and were still not free. It took another hundred years before leaders like Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King were able to advance the causes of freedom and racial equality further. In doing so, however, they rediscovered the power of nonviolence with a big assist from Gandhi and Tolstoy and ensured that William Lloyd Garrison's most revolutionary idea outlived its apparent demise during the Civil War. Garrison died in 1879 at age 73. Black hands intertwined with white ones to carry his casket at his funeral. During the memorial service, Frederick Douglass said, it was the glory of this man that he could stand alone with truth and calmly await the result. Garrison stood up for an America conceived in equal citizenship when few others dared to. Bruce Laurie. Garrison was about as thoroughgoing and egalitarian um, as there is in the 19th century. And like Martin Luther King, Garrison managed to build a social movement grounded in thousands of individual acts of non-cooperation. He learned how to face the mob, to stand up for justice, and how not to fight back. He learned how to combine radical politics with love and how to provoke confrontation in order to grow awareness. He's iconic in, in passive resistance circles, um, and probably justly so. I'm unaware of any thinker he appealed to in order to develop this strategy. He really is an original thinker and a most powerfully influential figure in American history. Garrison's own story, however, still depends on the hands of fate, including some timely help at a key moment. Garrison's influential newspaper, The Liberator, might never have made it to its second issue without the assistance of another largely forgotten figure from American history. Next week... In the final episode of this season, we complete our thread with the story of a remarkable African-American businessman whose generosity saved Garrison's newspaper and his revolutionary idea, and in doing so, altered the course of history. We also learn about the surprising trait that King, Rustin, Gandhi, and other nonviolent figures share. I am an abolitionist, I glory in the name. Though now by slavery's minions hissed and covered o'er with shame. It is a spell of light and power, the watchword of the free. Who spurns it in the trial hour, a craven soul is he. The thread is produced by Libby Coleman, Robert Kulos, Sophia Perpetua, and me, Sean Braswell. Chris Hoff engineered our show. This episode features the Duchess anti-slavery singers performing a song by William Lloyd Garrison called Song of the Abolitionist. To learn more about the thread, visit ozzy.com slash the thread, all one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on iHeartRadio or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at ozzy.com or on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>
If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, look no further than the flashback section of Ozzy.com. That's O-Z-Y dot com. Though now by slavery's minions hissed and covered o'er with shame, it is a spell of light and power, the watchword of the free, who spurns it in the trial hour, a craven soul is he. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.